Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. The series out is attitude. Everyone say attitude. It's heart disposition. Is why are you doing the thing that you are doing? Okay? So Elisha refused Naaman's offering. Remember? Naaman wanted to give him a huge offering. But Elijah discerned the inaccuracy of his heart. And he rejected an offering because the attitude and the heart disposition of the man was not correct. Okay? Was not right. So it's important to me that when we handle our money, and particularly in the aspect of financial giving, when we offer to the Lord, that we ensure that our heart positions are right before God. It's not the value of the offering that really matters. It's the quality of the heart that gives the offering, that makes the offering either from God's perspective huge or small. Yeah? So the poor widow gave two mites that make a farthing. And the rich, one it says, casting of their abundance. But Jesus evaluated the widow's two mites as more than all they that gave out of their surplus. And while I really believe it's because of an, a relative sum, she gave in all she had, they gave out of their, their abundance or their surplus. Like the Message Bible says, they gave what they will never miss. But she gave what she could not afford. Right? And from heaven's perspective, when heaven evaluated the offering, Jesus said, and I like these words, she gave more than them all. Right? So it, it might, it's not about natural estimation of rands and cents. It's about attitude that accompanies the act, that makes the act either acceptable or rejected by the Lord. Amen? So I want to encourage you, get your heart right. Tell your neighbor, get your heart right. Amen? And like I said, our, our intent in teaching the series is not to get your money. Okay? Our, our motive in teaching the series is honorable before the Lord. Right? Uh, Paul says, I don't, he said to the Philippians, I don't require gifts from you. That's what he said to them. Read Ephesians or Philippians chapter 4. He says, and I, and I urge you, not that I expect gifts from you, nor require it from you. But he said this, I am seeking fruit that might be credited to your account. Right? When he speaks about financial issues. And the Bible has much to say about money and finance. And in the first session, I went through painstakingly how this is covered in parables, how this is covered statistically or percentage-wise in reference to the numbers of scriptures that cover financial issues in the Bible. It's vast. So in the past, what ministers did, they either taught it apologetically or some with spurious motivations taught it in order to accrue funds to themselves. All right? Now, we're not going to swing on to either opposites of that pendulum. Right? We're going to teach it positively 
biblically and authoritatively. Because we have to bring our finances in alignment with God's will. Okay, we have to. So I'm worried. I'm, my, my main concern is what are the characteristics of giving that should accompany all of my giving? How should I give? And what we are dealing with now, what we started uh, on Sunday was give gracefully. Everyone say give gracefully. Right? You must give gracefully. Okay? Now, I just want to unpack this a bit more. I said to you, whenever the doctrine of grace comes up for discussion or is taught, it's taught variously based upon specific persuasions of the teacher or the minister teaching them. For, for a large sector of the church, grace is unmerited favor. Now, that is not wrong, but it is not complete. Grace is unmerited favor. But you're not describing grace when you say that. And I don't want to rehearse the entirety of the grace series. But what you are describing is an effect of grace. You're not describing grace in its essence. You can describe the outcome of a thing. So by faith, by faith, by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of your works, lest any man should boast. Um, if grace is unmerited favor, and that by that dynamic are you saved not by your own works. What you are describing is what grace does. Grace saves you as a free gift, impartation of righteousness, but you haven't defined what grace is. Right? And remember we went through, you, you can define fire as giving warmth. Or to a man in darkness, fire is that which gives light. To the person that needs to cook, fire is a source of heat. You're defining the thing, not the thing, you're defining effects or outcomes of the thing. Similarly with grace, grace is, must not only be understood in what it does in terms of its effect. Grace must be understood in its essence, what it is. Now please, you've got to track with me. We came to the conclusion after looking at various scriptures that grace is the substance of God as a spirit being. It's the compositional makeup of his person, if he has a constitution, if he has constituent elements to him, that is called the grace of God. Spirit, although invisible, has substance, has weight, has uh, texture, and that is called his grace. Please remember, it's the design of spirit. Ruach, spirit, or pneuma, is breath. Invisible, cannot see it, cannot quantify it, cannot feel or touch it. It's inanimate, it's invisible. But because it's invisible, it doesn't make it insubstantial. It has substance. The substance in God is called grace. And grace, I told you, is the bedrock of glory. You cannot have glory without grace. The weight, the cupboard of God is built up on the fabric of His, of his grace. Right? So the Lord God is a sun and shield. I'm quoting Psalm 84 verse 11. He gives grace and Glory, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk, them that walk uprightly. When you got saved by faith, by grace through faith, you said yes to the Lord, grace came. Mercy was the first administration of that grace. Your sins were forgiven, the penalty of sin removed, eternal life came into you, and God the Spirit 
came and regenerated your spirit. His spirit became one with your spirit, and he took up residency within you. Grace came to reside in you in spirit form. Having come into that estate, you are now required to grow in grace. Peter says, um, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A lot of people are saved by grace, but many, very few, are growing in grace. The grace that saved you, you are meant to grow in. Peter would say, multiplied grace be to you. Right? Grace, he said, in its fullest measure. And we tracked in our series the development of Jesus, remember? It says, and the child or the boy increased in wisdom, stature, and grace or favor. Caris, grace, favor of God and men. Okay? There's a place for growth in grace. Grace was on him as a 12-year-old boy. He says it very clearly. And the grace of God was, was on him. And then after 12, submission to Mary and Joseph, the Bible says by virtue of his subjection to them, he submitted to fatherly leadership, spiritual fathering. Then the Bible says, and he increased. By the time you read John chapter 1, John describes him as full of grace and truth. Right? So there was developmental stages of him coming into the fullness. Please remember of this, this if you could grab a hold of it in your hands, this texture called the, the grace of God, okay? This texture called the grace of God. Now, what has all this got to do with finance? <laughs> I'm saying, listen carefully, when God made you, when God made man, the first act of God as a spirit being full of grace was to make a human and take out of the same substance that He's comprised of and put that spirit into men. Listen carefully. The first and most powerful expression of God as a graceful being was to give out from himself. It was the first act. Everyone say the first act. So if your acts of giving anything, whether it's money, whether it's time, whether it's counsel, whether it's advice, anything that issues forth from out of you then must issue forth from the grace constituency in you. Everything must flow out from you, from the grace dynamic within you. You are spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit is most like God. The thing that is most like you, that is akin to God, is not your body. Because God doesn't have a body. It's not your soul because he doesn't have one. God is what? All of God is spirit. And the thing, the aspect about you that's most like him is spirit. If, if, if you define spirit as full of grace, the substance of spirit is grace, and that dynamic is in you too, then from the vantage point of your spirit must you engage life and give, in terms of finance, Whenever you give, you always employ the mind of your spirit to make decisions relative to how and what you give, not the mind of your soul. Because the mind of your soul left to itself outside of the guidance of the mind of your spirit, being led by the Holy Spirit, will usually make the wrong decisions. Right? God will be telling you one thing, 
And you will be saying, get thee behind me, Satan. Meantime, it's the Spirit of the Lord guiding your spirit to give from the platform of your spirit. Amen? So tell your neighbor, give from your spirit. Give from your spirit. Now, there's a verse in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 2. I just want to comment briefly about. I, I did a thorough explanation of this in the grace component. But there's something here that I just want to draw reference to. Ephesians 3 verse 2, it says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. Now, if you only understand the grace of God as unmerited favor that saves you and brings you into the kingdom, that definition, true as it may be, is severely limited for you to understand the fullness of the grace of God. What Paul is saying here, he's speaking as an apostle. He's saying, I've got grace. And notice the words, given to me for, for you. And we spoke about grace that attends fivefold ministers. Okay? He's speaking about as, as an apostle. And I spoke about apostolic grace that is designed to mature the saints into the fullness of, into the fullness of Christ. But he said this. Everyone say the stewardship. The stewardship of the grace of God. Now, stewardship is the word oikonomia. Remember we said this? Oikonomia, made up of two words, oikos and nomos. Oikos is house, and nomos um, is law. Right? So the law of God in the house of God. Nomos is derived from, or a derivative of nomos is nemo, which means to give out or to distribute or to dis dispense. Not so? If you have a New King James Bible or King James, it reads it like this. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God. It doesn't use the word stewardship. It uses the word dispensation. A dispensary, like a pharmacy, when you're sick, you go to dispensary. What do they do? Based upon a prescription they give out to you, the required medicine to make you better. What is God's dispensary? Everyone say the house of God. Oikonomia, oikos house. So when you come to the house of God, you get the law of God, the nomos in the house of God. The law is the word of God. When you hear the word of God in the word that's grace, packaged, given out to you to make you better. To fix you up, to mature you, to make you live a successful life. So tell you about welcome to the dispensary. <laughs> we had to dispense grace packaged in words. This is what this is the idea that Paul had when he used this word stewardship. And a steward looks after something that is not his. It's not ownership, it's stewardship. You see, the grace given to me, not mine. God's grace, God had you in mind. He just gave me custody of it. He gave me stewardship of it. But here is the fascinating thing about this word. That you know. All this I've explained before. Right? But 
Some Greek scholars translate stewardship as economy. So this could read like this. You have heard of the economy of the grace of God. What is an economy? What is an economic system? In South Africa, we have a specific economy or system of economics. And the basic uh, ethos is we need to use scarce resources. Right? Scarce available resources in a production process, manufacture goods and services, and get that marketed and distributed uh, to people so as to satisfy, for a price, yes, to satisfy the basic needs of people so that the welfare of people are adequately taken care of. That's an economy, more or less, in, in layman's terms. Now you can get some technical definitions of economy, but, right? Basic uh, thing about an economy is you have a group of people that they have needs and you have to have the needs met. Now I want to tell you grace is an economy. If you live in the economy of grace, in grace you will have all your needs met. It's a spatial sphere of existence that you come into. Listen carefully. Um, let me just back up before I go on. I feel I need just to, um, to do one or two things. Everyone say grace is a spatial sphere of existence. Just, I think it's Romans 5.1. The text that says um, that we've been called into this grace. We've received uh, by faith or being justified. We've received our introduction or have access into this grace in which we stand. Okay? Now everyone say access into this grace. Right? It speaks about an access into this grace in which we stand. Now, Grace doesn't just save you. Grace, I call it, is a spatial sphere of existence that you come into and in which you live. Who is the person of grace? Who's full of grace? God, right? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Are you in Him? Yeah? So therefore, are you in grace? Do you live in Him? Therefore, you're living in? In grace. And I'm saying, biblically, that grace is designed to meet all of your needs. That grace is designed to take care of your welfare, just like a natural economy would. It's your spatial sphere of existence called the grace of God. Right? Called the grace of God. Now, um, just quickly before I go on, I need to just make sure we all understand this. The essence of grace is the compositional nature of God as spirit. The effects of grace are various. And I discussed two primary effects with you in our series, remember? That grace configures your sonship and empowers your functionality or your destiny. What did Paul say? I am what I am by grace. And then he says, I work, but not I, the grace of God that is with me. So, I am by grace, that's identity. Grace configures my sonship. Everyone say, I am by grace. And then he says, 
I work by grace. So grace empowers my functionality. Right? Now, the effect of grace is least understood by most people, by, by most Christians. If you do a survey and you do a simple questionnaire and ask all Christians in South Africa to define grace, you get a bunch of responses, right? And most of them will say unmerited favor or receiving the love of God, receiving the free forgiveness, and that is all true, but they're only describing one specific effect of grace, and it's usually the entrance into the economy. When you get saved, you get, your sins are forgiven. Nobody describes growing in grace. No one describes that there's someone called an, an apostle, an apostolic father, like Paul says, that he's got a certain quantum and quality of grace that you need to be connected to. Paul says, grace given to me for, for you. There's that, that flow of grace that must come to you. No one will talk about those things. And all those things are designed to increase your grace allotment. So you come into a certain way of living that is designed to empower you and for you to get the victory over everything in life. Now listen carefully. What are, let me just quickly go to this. So I didn't plan to do this, but I think I need to just because I'm just sensing if I go into these other things, some of you may not fully comprehend the, the, the profundity of this world, this I call it a spatial sphere of existence. It's an economy that I live in. It's called the grace economy of God. Right? But to fully understand that, you can function in life, listen carefully, either by works based on human sweat and human effort and human perspiration. That's one level. Or you can function in life being fueled and empowered by the grace of God. Now, I want to just dispel one uh, myth. It's a misnomer to believe that grace makes you lazy. Grace does not make you lazy. In fact, from my own personal experience and from Paul's writings, I think grace makes you work more harder, but your hard work is not rooted in personal effort based upon personal perspiration. Let me quote Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. Now, please, you've got to get this. Because this is going to transform the way you give financially. Some of you are struggling to give because your giving is still rooted in the works domain. And you haven't tapped into grace. And I said the first thing of grace from God's perspective was to give out from himself and he made a world. He spoke from this dynamic within his spirit composition called the grace of God. And from there he did what he, he spoke. He gave out from grace. Repeat after me, God gave out from grace. Ask your neighbor what gives. Answer them. Grace gives. You can never ever talk about grace and not speak about the quality of grace that beckons. Uh, grace presses. Grace seeks to, to give out. Nobody that is graceful cannot but not help themselves but give. Right? James Strong, I say this to you, the, the scholar. Most of you have a strong concordance. James Strong said this when he defined charis, the Greek word for grace. He says it's something to the effect of it has its most powerful joy if 
this thing called grace. In the generous and benevolent nature of the giver of the gifts. The giver becomes generous and benevolent in the expression. It seeks to express itself. Who likes to be like God? Or who wants to be like God? Come on, let me see your hands, right? Now, when I say that, I guarantee most of you have something in mind, right? So, what aspect about God did you have in mind when I said, who wants to be like Him, right? You have various things going on. And I'm sure if we compare notes, it will all be different, right? Maybe someone to be like him in terms of his peace. I think most want the power. Hallelujah. Right? The power or the creative potential of various. Very few people will pick their hand up and say, I want to match him in how he gives. If he's the greatest giver yet, then I want to have that dynamic powerfully pulsating in and through my being. God is a giver at heart. For God so loved the world that he did what whenever you think of god just look at me just think of this (laughs) he just wants to get stuff out right god is not a withholding god he is very inviting to share with man the fullness of his glory remember he says my glory i will not give to another but you are not another the word another means one unlike or dissimilar to in terms of essence and being but you are like him He prayed in the garden and he said, the glory you gave me, I have given them. Yeah, it's God's intent to share stuff with you. Now, if you are the recipient of his grace, I want to say this. Don't give in works, from works, from a work-centered mindset. Give from a graceful mindset. One of the things about grace is that whenever it gives, it reckons itself undiminished by the quantum it gave. Right? Naturally, if you have a thousand rand, if you give five hundred, a thousand minus five hundred is five hundred. That's using a natural mind to reckon and work out the sums. Grace does not do that. Grace says, I've given natural things with the spiritual mind. I've given natural things from the vantage point of the grace texture or substance in God that does not know reduction whenever it meets out something from itself. Right? So when God gave Adam the first measure of spirit, he formed his body from the dust. The Bible says the Lord God did what? <sighs> ruach. He breathed into Adam. Breath. Ruach. Spirit. Where did that spirit come from? From him. God took out from himself and put it in the man. God is not lessened by what he gave to Adam. The realm of spirit, you must catch this. The realm of spirit does not know diminishment whenever it gives out. Its intent to give out is to multiply itself in the other. In multiple sons all over the world, God says, my image, my likeness. To replicate itself consistently. So the boy with five loaves, remember? Two fish. What is five? Grace. Five is the number of? Grace. Boy with five loaves was not disadvantaged by what he gave. He wasn't caught on the back foot by what he gave. He wasn't marginalized or rendered uh, less by what he gave. Because he gave from grace, five, and that's where we get the symbols, he gave 
from grace. And there's another, you know, you know when Jesus rose from the dead, and remember he came and his disciples were fishing, and he said to them, let's go on the shore. And he got there before them. What was he eating? Fish, not bread. The resurrected Christ didn't eat bread, he ate fish. The boy with five loaves and two fish, five represents bread, which is the, what's bread? The, the word of the Lord, filled with grace. And the fish represents the spirit dimension. So wherever you have grace filtered through the spirit and it's given out, it has the effect of multiplying. A corporate need is met. Right? So if I, I told you the, the testimony last week, I met Sister Giles, and the Lord said to me, uh, empty your wallet and give it. And so if I'm a natural mind, what I'll do? I'll count the rands and cents. But what does the mind of the Spirit say? Right? I'm, I'm giving to meet a need, and I will not be left disadvantaged by what I gave. The one thing you must deal with thoroughly is the fear of not having. You must deal with the fear of money. It, 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 you know, mammon is the God, the spiritual host, the principality. I'm going to talk more about him on Sunday. The spiritual principality that controls men through the medium of, of money. Right? And you, you cannot function in life being bound by fear for not having. If you live in that realm, you're going to function not like a son of God. You're going to function like an orphan. And whenever God speaks to you, you will always rationalize and reckon in your soul. Meantime, your spirit is saying something. Your spirit is saying something else. I don't know of anybody that came into lavish giving in kingdom affairs that was ever rendered less than, worse off than what they, than what they gave. God is no man's debtor. God will reward you, if not now, but later. I said to you, there are counts and records kept in the heavens. Remember Cornelius' offerings came up, what? Like a memorial. I mean, this man built a synagogue for the Jews. Remember? They said to me, that they said, this Roman officer loves our people. He actually built us a synagogue. I think maybe when he did that, and he was so kind to the Jews throughout all his life, he's just doing it as a matter of, of his devotion. One year, two years, three years, just kept on. At a point in time, God says, now, I will, I, will, I will talk to my apostle Peter. I will orchestrate events and circumstances. Let him come to your house. Preach to you and your whole family the gospel. Upgrade everybody in one moment. Do you know what activated all of that? God said, you're giving. Your giving is never forgotten by God. It, if, if, if some of you might be feeling, but I haven't seen the results. I will encourage you, church. If you gave honorably with purity of motivation, with the correct attitude of heart, I want to say this to you. The Lord will never forget your gifts. He will never. Yeah? Psalm 20 says it very clearly. He remembers your offerings. He remembers your offerings. You know, there's a verse after the flood. And the Bible says, and the Lord remembered Noah. It's like, hey, Lord, did you forget the guy? <laughs> there's one guy surviving there on the ship. It says, and the Lord remembered Noah. Okay? 
I want to encourage you, God does not forget. Look at Hebrews, just quickly. Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 16. Hebrews 12, verse 14 to 16. Pursue peace with all men and sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Now, just let, let's just stop there. Pursue holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the, the grace of God. Now, when you pursue holiness or sanctification, you can't do that in your own strength. You've you got to do that by the power of the grace of God. A lot of people don't understand this dynamic of God at God's grace. Yes, is His essence. It's in me. Listen carefully. It's in me. I must observe certain principles to grow in it, like humility, for example. God gives grace to the humble, but he will resist the proud. So even if I'm in salvation and I maintain a prideful mindset, guess what? Grace is going to miss me. But if I, if I maintain humility, guess what? It's a position I adopt in order to, to incrementally grow in grace. Okay? And we looked at various, there's about 12 or 15 uh, factors that hasten your growth in grace that we've discussed. Once that takes place, and the essence of God becomes more pronounced within you, what you're going to find is a distinct increase in grace effects. When grace essence grows, grace effects exponentially multiply. You've got to seek to grow in grace, right? Observing all the principles that we've taught, but how can I grow in grace? If you just seek to grow in grace, the grace empowerment, all that grace does, will start to manifest in your life. The lack of giving problem in a church is a grace deficiency problem. No person full of grace will not but give. Right? People don't give because of poor grace or a lack of growth in grace. And I shared with you how the Corinthians, Paul said to them that I will send Titus to you. And when Titus comes to you, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, when Titus comes to you, Corinthians, he will complete this grace in you. Everyone say this grace. No? And he says, it says uh, the NLT says, this gracious work of giving. Do you know that giving is a grace? Say it with me. Giving is grace. Right? Listen carefully. There is no to my mind, no greater correlation given in the scripture concerning grace and its potential effects or outworking than the correlation between grace and money. That is outside, obviously, of the salvation experience. Let me restate that. Outside or second to the experience of salvation in scripture there's no other greater coverage, no correlation given between grace and its potential effects than the issue of grace and how you handle your money. Right? In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, the chapters that speak about finance, the word grace appears seven times. And yet Paul is talking about money, 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 money. He's talking about finance. 
but he references the, the grace of God. Remember 2 Corinthians 8? What, how does he start? Let's just put that up, Jordi. 2 Corinthians 8, from verse 1 to 4. He says, I want to make known to you what? The, the grace of God. Right? I want to make known to you, brethren, the grace of God upon the churches at Macedonia. Then he says what? Great ordeal of affliction, the abundance of joy, and secondly, deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality or their generosity. On Sunday, I touched on this. There were two issues here. He says that here's a church in verse 2 in great suffering or deal of affliction. And from that context, what do they have? Great joy. Right? So they, they defy what should be gloom, despair, downcast. Because there's a great trial, great affliction. You would expect a discouraged group. But when you come to these Macedonians, hey, hallelujah, everyone's happy. And, God, and Paul is saying, an effect of grace. What is, what is the first statement? I want to make known to you what? Grace of God upon a people. Then he says, great suffering, but hey, great joy. Then he says, deep, not shallow poverty, not poverty, deep, everyone say deep poverty. It's the kind of poverty you can't get out of. It's so deep, right? Abject poverty, he says, abject poverty, but their giving is characterized by excessive extravagance. Liberality means lavish giving. Uh, generous. What I'm suggesting to you, their context should have said meager giving. Small. The least. Paul says, if a people have grace, and they harness the power of grace, and give not from the natural context of their circumstances, but they give from the wealth of grace content, they can defy the limitations of their natural conditions and give at a realm that far defies their present circumstances. And then he says they gave according to their ability, even beyond their ability. We'll get into this chapter later on. All I want to do is, listen carefully, say grace effects. And I'm saying, you know, I'm laboring this. There's a whole, looks like we're going to be the whole year with the series. Unless we get this right, nothing else makes sense in the series. You'll be looking, if I teach you first fruits, you say, huh? But if you, if you receive first fruits with the mind of the Spirit, you'll say, wow, grace can. Randolph can't, but grace in him can. If I do the maths, count the rands and sins, difficult, but grace can. Tell your neighbor, grace can. Grace can. Yeah? Look at 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Repeat after me, grace is also God's empowerment. Say, grace is God's enablement. You can take not what I'm teaching, not, don't just apply it to finance, apply it to anything in your life. When you can't, grace can. In fact, grace works best when you can't. It works best within the context of human weakness. Paul says, when I'm weak, remember that second, that, con, that chapter, he says, my grace is sufficient. For my power, 
My empowerment is made perfect in your, in your weakness. Amen. I miss my wife terribly. <laughs> As you no doubt can see. She'll be back on Saturday. She's gone. This is the longest time we've been apart. Well, not the longest time. The longest time she's been away from me. <laughs> okay, that's a different thing to me being away from her. Right? And um, I was spinning the past few days. Between the kids and the extracurricular programs, it was literally spinning. And with meetings, and uh, there was parent meetings, there was Luke's playing for volleyball. You, uh, they're playing a tournament this week. He's got an Achilles tendonitis issue today. Lillian helped us out with seeing a surgeon. It was just to and fro. There was pastors' meetings today, etc. And, you know, at one point, I was literally going dizzy. You know when you see those cartoons and you go, zzzz. <laughs> it was like one of those moments. I, and I just stopped. I said, God, give me grace. I can't. But I want to tap into a power that's going to override my human ability. What I, can, what I can do physically in my flesh, this is beyond me. Um, you know, I had to relearn how to do decimal fractions, multiplication. <laughs> Renee does all the homework and check. Now Ray comes to me, and this story is that, I, I, I knew a few, but some of the, the, method, the way they'd work, the methodology, I just said to her, get the calculator, sister. <laughs> she said, Dad, you can't use a calculator. You must show how the working, the methodology. I had to relearn. I said, God, grace. Your grace can allow me to do anything. But, but all good. Listen carefully. When you can't, grace can. Come on, say that to someone. When you can't, grace can. He said to me, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. What I want you to notice here is, he's saying, he says, my he says, my grace, right? Then he uses the word power. My grace, power. What is grace? God's power, God's enablement, right? So when you can't, especially when you are weak, then grace's potential in you becomes more, most greatly accentuated. It's when you can, and you think you can, you leave no space for grace to work. But when you can't, and usually God has a method to bring you to the end of yourself and say, now let me have my way when you can't do any further. That's why Paul says, when I'm in weakness, it says power is what? Is power perfected in strength? No. Power is perfected in the context of weakness. And he says, most gladly, I will boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. And I'm saying to you, when you think finances, you say, God, we are financially weak. God says, well, I've got you where I want you. For now, I want you to harness the power of my enablement, my empowerment in you and start to function by my grace. Right? Start to function by my grace. Did you get saved by your own works? No. Now, in salvation, don't then rely on human sweat still to get progress in God.
you always rely on the, on the grace of God, even in your financial giving and financial uh, management. Okay? Hebrews 12, verse 28, quickly. Hebrews 12, verse 28. The other scriptures I won't, I won't go through because we've, we've dealt with. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we have receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have what? This, look at the, the new King James, Jody. Therefore, since we have receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. How can you serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear? What must you have? Grace. Right? So he talks about this context. God's going to shake everything, heaven and earth. Right? So the things that can be shaken will be removed so that those things that cannot be removed will, will stand. Then he argues, well, since we are in a kingdom, while the shaking is going on everywhere, the kingdom is the only stable thing. We will not be shaken in the kingdom. As long as we're in the kingdom, when God shakes political systems, economic systems, worldly systems, kingdom is stable. But what does the kingdom have? Grace. Let us have grace by which we can serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. The text I was looking for earlier was Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Sorry, we're in the right location, just the next verse down. Okay. Romans 5, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our, everyone say, introduction. By faith into this grace in which we stand. You've been introduced into grace. Grace didn't just save you, you came into it. That's why I say it's a spatial sphere of existence. You live in this thing called the, the grace of God. Next time you're filling out a form and they say address. Just like grace. <laughs> Where do you stay? I live in grace, brother. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's my, that's my frame of reference. What is that? That's, you say God's power. That's God's power in me, working in me. When I can't, grace can. When I'm unable to do, grace can do it. In and through me. When I first heard the first fruit teaching, and I, and I obeyed it, in sowing it to Pastor Thamo, for us it was a big deal. It was a huge amount of money. And naturally, we couldn't afford it if you do the maths. But what does the mind of the Spirit say? No, the Spirit here will make a decision because the Spirit is full of grace. So grace will propel the action. Grace will push the process. You've got to function like that. And grace will never, ever let you down. I want to encourage you. Grace initiatives, grace promptings will never, ever leave you compromised. Because God will take care of you. God will take care of you. There's a lovely verse. Let me just, uh, one more in reference to this. Um, I'm trying to find it. Oh, yes, it's here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And verse 12. Paul says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have 
conducted ourselves in the world, especially to you. Everyone say, conduct yourself in the grace of God. An amazing text. The word conduct means to be busy. Busyness. Paul is saying, I was busy where? In the world, but in the grace of God. Can you see how grace is a sphere? It's a realm that you It's a kingdom. It's a quality of the kingdom. You've come into it. And he boasts, our proud boast, our confidence is that we have conducted ourselves in the grace of God. Again, I want to encourage you, um, apply this to any realm of your life, not just to finances. Anything. You can do it by grace. You can overcome sin by grace. Right? Uh, you can love a brother by grace. You can forgive your enemy. Naturally speaking, your, your, your mind, the mind of the soul says, no way can I do this. But grace is God's empowerment. It's God's enablement to do the will of God. I like um, this view of grace, that grace is the energy. It energizes the believer or the Son of God to function in a particular way in reference to pleasing God and doing God's purposes um, in the earth. Now, I want to encourage you. I said to you there's no greater correlation between the grace of God and its effects than the issue of grace and how we give financially, how we administrate um, finances. If grace is my sphere of existence, if it's, my, if it's my frame of reference, so to speak, I work, I'm in the world, but I'm not of the world. I have a job for which I'm remunerated. The Lord expects of me to honor Him with the tithe and the offering and first fruit, which we'll get to later in the series. Right? If, I, if I approach that requirement of God as a man, it'll be hard for me to obey in the natural. But I've got to approach it from the power of grace that enables me to obey it. Remember on Sunday I said to you, how did Jesus die? How did he taste death? Hebrews 2 says he tasted death. How? By the grace of God, he tasted death. Tasting death was obedience. Right? Philippians says he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in chapter 2, verse 89, where it says he tasted death. For me, he tasted obedience. How did he obey? By the power of the grace of God in him. And I said to you, just incline yourself to it. Just bend. He first said, not my will, but your will be done. Right? He said, if it's possible, my flesh says, take this requirement from me. Take this requirement. But the moment he said, not my will, but thy will, I believe, then God takes over. Then it's not left up to his human capacity. Grace comes in and grace fuels the obedience process. He, listen carefully. Repeat after me. He tasted death by the grace of God. And I just demonstrated to you that grace in context of some scriptures is God's enabling power. When you can't, grace will do it in and through you if you just incline yourself to the will. Grace kicks in and grace drives the process. At that point, it's not about you. It's all God's responsibility. God does require your cooperation. Your complicity. You must be compliant, right? 
But the moment you just bend and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, then grace kicks in. And you'll be saying, wow, I did that actually me? Huh? And Paul say, I work, yet not I. The grace of God. Grace doesn't make you lazy because Paul says, I work, but not me. So if I incline myself to work, grace comes alongside and pushes the process. Some of most Christians are trying too hard in their in their own strength. Right? Tell them to just rest a bit. Let me read to you Matthew eleven twenty eight. Remember, I said leave some space for grace. Some of you are saying, I can't overcome this sin. Oh, this habit of mine keeps coming back. I, I've repented it 10,000 times already. God must be tired of my repentance. Pray about this one. When am I ever going to overcome? I'm saying you're trying to hold in your own flesh. Grow in grace. If you observe all the principles I taught you and grow in grace, an empowerment will come alongside you. And you see, when you grow in grace, you outgrow sin. You don't have to overcome something. Some things you'll outgrow. You see, you outgrow one domain by growing into another. The more you grow into another, you'll outgrow certain things. So grow in grace and outgrow certain things that hold you back. Then you say, wow, a year ago I battled with pornography. How is it that now you can flash the most obscene images and try and lure me? How is it now I can just walk away? Grace, left to yourself, you'll fall every time. But when grace grows, grace empowers you, right, to say no to sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? No, Paul says. Yeah? God forbid. No way. Yeah? You can overcome anything by the grace of God. Okay? Um, let me read this, but I'm reading from the message. I don't think we have the message on the, on the computer there. I love the Message Bible, Matthew, 20, Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you will recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-footing on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live freely and lightly. Lovely framing, eh? Of the same passage. I love this phrase, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Grace doesn't force anything. Some of you are trying too hard to make it happen. Because grace has unforced rhythms which if you allow to kick in, it will take care of things naturally for you. Amen? What you need to, to reform your financial world is a huge download of the grace of God. What's going to require your obedience and your trust. Let me, let me close with this. Um, if money represents a major part of your life, not so, doesn't it? That's why you go to work every day. If you didn't, Yeah? Doesn't money represent a major aspect of our lives? Do you know we will send our, and our, our children will make a decision as to where to study because of money? 
They will select certain vocations because of certain expected remuneration packages. Money controls most things. The whole world lies in, the, in, in its power, basically. So, listen to this. I haven't checked these figures. I hope they're right. Listen carefully. If the average person works an eight-hour a day, five days a week, eight hours a day every day, with approximately three weeks annual leave, and assuming they earn 10,000 rand per month, right, and they work in every month 20 days, not counting weekends, just five days a week, four weeks in a month, they're working 20 days in a month. Five-day week, 8 a.m., to 5 p.m. You have worked nine hours a day or 45 hours a week on average 180 hours a month. Your earnings per hour is just under 56 rand per hour. Right? And you get 10,000 rand per month. And assume you give your tithe to the Lord of 1,000 rand of that money. And let's say you match your tithe with an offering or another thousand. So you're giving two thousand of the, the ten thousand rand away to the Lord. This equates to just under that two thousand rand, thirty-six hours of work done. So when you bring this money to the Lord, you are saying to God, of the hundred and eighty odd hours, yes, thirty-six hours worth for you. Your tithe. And your offering dens are symptomatic and representative of the totality of your life. What you are saying to the Lord is, I bring this to, to you because you are my source. You are the source of my job. I only have the talent to work, the skills that I have. I might have studied for them, but it's all gifts that are, you have given to me. I don't take that for granted. I have come to, to honor you to the Lord. Uh, you, you've come before the Lord to honor Him as the source of all your blessing, the source of all of your, of your sustenance. Whenever you give any form of income, either in tithes, first fruits, or offerings to the Lord, what you are giving is not just money, because money represents something. It represents time, talents, energy, skills, ingenuity, right? It represents your world that you're saying, God, this belongs to, this belongs to you. So it's symptomatic of a reality. What you are really saying is, I trust you. Everyone say, I trust you. The world says, no, keep it. You in the kingdom, living in a grace economy, saying, it's only by grace I got this. Grace in me can't help but to honor my father so I will, I will give it, okay? So listen to me as I close. When you give to God and His kingdom, you demonstrate where your trust is. When you, you come from the workplace, you're saying, I've got this in Babylon, I've got this in a work context, but I'm coming to you, to your house, to your servants, and I honor you as the source. I demonstrate where my trust is. And I wrote you in my notes, listen carefully. When you do this, you are declaring, my trust is in God and His grace. Not my strength, not my effort, not my skill, talent, or ability, not even earthly systems, or my job. God is my source. 
Therefore, I will gladly give generously to him and his kingdom, which I am seeking first by this expression. Whenever you give, you are saying, this is my small indication of I'm putting you first. Right? I'm bringing this offering and I'm giving it uh, to you. And I wrote this, whether you give or do not give financially, whether you give or you do not give financially, either way, you are illustrating where your trust is. The giver is demonstrating my trust is God. The non-giver is saying my trust is myself, my job, my world. When the giver brings from that domain as a token, it could be like in this case 20%, or whichever, you're saying, Lord, I honor you as my, as my source. I honor you as my source. And I, sh- I said this to you a few weeks ago. You can easily locate your heart. Just find out where your money is. Because Luke 12 verse 34 says that where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So ask your neighbor, where's your heart? Right? The money issue is a trust issue. Don't tell me God is your father when you can't say to him, I will take just a tenth of the blessing you gave me, and I honor you. When you do that, you are saying, my trust is in you. And what does the proverb say? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And the text says where your treasure is, there's your heart also. So you'll know where your heart is trusting God by finding out where's the destination of your money. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And what does the balance of the text say? And do not lean upon your own understanding, the mind of your soul. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. A a, a financial gift, He's saying, God, I acknowledge you. I put you first. It's an acknowledgement of the Lord. I put you first. We trust in God when we do this. And when you do that, listen carefully. I don't have time to explain it here. Grace, if you have it, it's in you and you're growing in it, will activate giving. Grace pushes and presses to give. But once you give, once you give, giving itself is a biblical methodology for accessing more grace. Second Corinthians 9, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. Let me just give you a preview of what we will do on Sunday. Sunday, I'll give you eight. Well, I don't know if we use all these examples. I have 10, 11 case studies where we'll prove this point. Giving is from grace. And when it does take place, the giver accesses more grace to give at a greater level. But the grace you access is the nature of God. It's a powerful methodology for growing in grace. In what chapter did Abraham give a tithe to Melchizedek? Come on, you guys know. Genesis 14. Right? The war with the kings, right? 
gave a tithe of all. In what chapter was his name changed? 17. Serai became Serah. Serai means contention, strife. The womb couldn't have a, couldn't be a strife-torn womb. And Abram became Abraham. And remember the change from Abram to Abraham is what? In the Hebrew alphabet, it's the insertion of the fifth letter to change the name. Five is what? So is Abram growing in grace? Yes. I believe the, the growth in grace was built upon the honor of the tithe to, Mel, to Melchizedek. Three chapters later, God saying, Shoop, I, I call it grace insertion. Abraham, Abraham, I give you, you, you are exalted father. Now Abraham, you father of a multitude or, or nations. When did God ask him to sacrifice his son? Genesis 22. If Abraham could not tithe, he could never give Isaac. If he could not be faithful with the tithe, he would not have been faithful with the offering of his son. By the time the requirement came to offer the boy, he was at that stage at already a higher grace configuration and allotment in his life for God to say, now the boy. God could not ask for the boy earlier. Well, he wasn't even born right. Because the grace content of Abram was not sufficiently developed to function at a higher level of giving. Do you know what I'm after now? I'm not even giving to get. I'm not even sowing to reap. I am giving to grow in grace. I want the grace more than anything else. And God is able to make all grace a Bound to you. Listen carefully. All gifts are expressions of grace. All gifts. Right? The Bible says, as each one has received the gift, let him employ it as, as, as grace and minister one to the, to the other. Yeah? What is the gift that you most desire? Oh, by the way, there's three categories of gifts. Nine gifts of the Spirit in Corinthians. In Romans 12, there's seven what they call grace gifts or motivational gifts. And Ephesians 4, ascension gifts or fivefold ministries. Right? Now, leaving the fivefold category because those are specialists, God chooses. But in terms of these two, Paul says, desire earnestly the best gifts. Ask your neighbor, what gift do you want? The gift I want is not even found in Corinthians. It's in Romans 12. It says, let him who gives do so with generosity. That's talking about a gift of giving. People have faith. We all have faith, right? But there's something called the gift of faith. Where the person with the gift operates at a faith level higher than the ordinary believer that has general faith. Right? Are you called to do miracles? Yes. But the gift of the working of miracles is one of the gifts of the Spirit. Right? Gifts of healing. And the person with the gift functions at a higher level than the ordinary believer who is expected to function in signs and wonders. Now question, are all believers expected to give? Yes, but the person with the gift of giving functions at a higher level. It's like he can 
he can give a generous sum that leaves the person without the gift. God, how can you do that? He says, gift in operation. I mean, the guy with the faith believes God and we all, how can he? Gift in operation. Guy with the gift of healing. Guy can't walk. He prays. The guy walks. Gift in operation. I said to God, you know what is the clue? Listen carefully. Andy noted this a few years ago. I don't know if you recall. We were talking and I said, doesn't it make sense if all and any gift is an expression of grace that the scriptures teach? Why not pursue the gift of giving? Because the gift of giving is the only gift biblically which is promised if you do it, God will make all grace abound to you. If you get that gift, you get all grace from which you can function any other gift. Make sense? So what gift do you want? What gift should you be pursuing? What was the first act of the grace of God to the earth? To give. To give will be the greatest expression of grace accessible. So I want to encourage you. Be the best giver you can. But don't leave you and say, don't do it in your own strength, please. Do you know, uh, do you see those, those, those uh, calls to give on TV? Go to the phone, go to the phone, go now. Right? <laughs> um, if you give, uh, what they call, $1,000. or Some of them use specific, Values and they will reference the scripture. Give $729. Go to Psalm 79, 72, verse 9 now, and oh my gosh, I think people are so gullible. Do you know when people respond to that, that's not grace giving, that's manipulation. So if you give based on works, not from grace, you get a result that grace does not generate. But if you give from grace, grace prompted, the result will be graceful. Or what God determined for your life as well. So I want to encourage you if, if you, if ever you're in that environment, don't feel pressure to give where you know the grace of God in you is not prompting you. Right? You always give from the platform of grace. And I want to pray now that, uh, lift up your hands, I want to pray that God will begin to increase supernaturally our grace allocation to give. Grace grieves generously, and I'm saying, I'm going to pray more concerning this almost every week, that the gift of giving becomes my point. That's, that's the gift I'm after. Say, God, I want the gift of giving. I want to be just like you when it comes to the matter of giving. Scripture says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Far more blessed to give than to receive. Father, we thank you. We've come out on this midweek night to sit under the sound of your word. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. And let not our coming be in vain. You're not a man that you should lie, neither are you the son of man that you should repent of what you have said. But hath you not said it, and will you not make it good? We stand today in your presence, and I pray, Holy Spirit, come even now. 
And I pray an impartation of grace in abundance where we find ourselves weak. Let your grace empower us to do what our human limited ability cannot. Let your grace work efficiently and efficaciously now in the lives of your people. Specifically, Father, we ask that you grant to us the gift of giving. We desire this. Your word says we must desire earnestly the gifts. And we covet this. We seek it. We ask that you would take what should be ordinary expressions of giving, characteristic of any son of God. For us, though, God, I ask, accentuate it now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let it be a gift, not just a disposition. Grant to us what is most truest of your nature, is to grant, is to give. Give that to us tonight, I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Let it be our portion. Right now, by faith, we receive it, not just in the realm of giving. We receive new grace to overcome sin, new grace to do your work effectively outside of human efforts. I pray grace propulsion and energy will energize us to complete our personal assignments in you. We give you thanks for this word, and I pray that great and abundant grace will be everybody's portion now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.